My name's Brad. Uh, nice to see, nice to see you all. Uh, so, Carrie, my wife and I watch this show. Or we watch a few shows together, and in this, there's always this time in the show where everyone is happy and doing well. I'm not going to tell you the name of the show because it's embarrassing for me. Okay, but it's a reality TV show. The Bachelorette. No. <laughs> That's not selling Sunset, but. It's on the same channel. But so it's the, uh, it's uh, d- enough. I'll tell you after. But they always have these dinner parties. And when they have these dinner parties, it's always happy and go lucky until it's not. And then these people who are, who are younger and they live in a city in the south, and, and, and the, until someone says something and it sets the whole wonderful dinner party afire right? Have we ever been in those situations? Maybe it's coming up for you at Thanksgiving. It always happens at Thanksgiving. You're at, you're at the table and that crazy relative is with you and you're just waiting for him or her to say that one thing that's going to set the whole dinner upside down. Do we know about those? What do we call that? Conflict. Oh, conflict. Everything is great until there's conflict. Everything looks wonderful until we have conflict. Uh, The the dinner parties, the family meals, whatever. It's okay until that person walks into the room and you look over at this person and you go, oh crap, this is just a tinderbox of of everything. All we need is a spark and the TNT has exploded. It's conflict. And it's always under the radar until it's not. And so everything looks great. And so when you look in your Bibles, you read the story of Acts, uh, the story of the church, right? It starts with Jesus giving them this, their commission and, and, and then says, go wait for the Holy Spirit to come join you. And you're like, awesome, the Holy Spirit's going to empower them. Then you get to Acts 2, and I'm turning with my Bible right now to Acts, uh, join me. And then you get to Acts 2, and then the Holy Spirit fills them. At the end of Acts 2, there's the statement, and thousands were added to their numbers, and, and they had community. Acts 3, Peter heals somebody. And, and then and, and in uh, chapter 4, Peter's before the Sanhedrin. He's arrested, and then he's released from prison. And you're looking at all this going, this is awesome. More people are healed. Ananias and Sapphira decide to lie about things. That's a little other story that we can get into at another times. And, and then there's, you know, Saul comes, and he's, he's, he's saved. Stephen has this amazing message, and he's martyred. Then you get into Acts 8. And, and Philip is magically transported to Samaria. And then all of a sudden he's on this road and he's witnessing to an Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be reading Isaiah in the back of his chariot, which is wild to begin with. And Philip is there. He's running alongside a chariot, which Philip was fast. And then, and then this Ethiopian eunuch comes to Jesus and he says, I, you can be baptized right now. And then Saul comes to Jesus in Acts 9. In Acts 10, you have Cornelius and the Gentiles are in. We talked about that last week about how, how, how can we call somebody unclean when God's called them clean? Like everybody has access to Jesus. And then you keep turning the page and then Peter has to defend himself and everything. And then Paul and Barnabas are sent off and they go off into a, uh, uh, for their uh, first missionary journey and everything's going great. And then you get to Acts 15 and it's not. All of a sudden the wheels come off. There's a, there's a, a wet blanket that's uh, that's thrown on this thing. And at the end of Acts chapter 14, you, the, the, the last chapter, the, one of the last verses in 26 
sets everything up. Paul and Barnabas from Elisha, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had completed. And so they're like, yes, this first missionary trip that the church has ever sponsored come back. And it was wildly successful. Paul and Barnabas, and they're celebrating this fact that they have, uh, they've witnessed to folks who weren't Jewish. And there was a movement of the Holy Spirit amongst the Gentiles and half the church is going bravo. And then you start verse chapter 15. And it starts like this. Certain people came down from Judea and Antioch uh, and, and were teaching believers, unless you are circumcised according uh, to the custom by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought sharp dispute and debate to Paul and Barnabas. Oh, the tires just screeched. So here they are, and, and, and what we'll learn today is that conflict happens even in the most perfect situations, even in the beautiful story of the church. Conflict occurs all the time. Conflict is normal. It's inevitable. But what we'll learn today is combat is not. How do we work through our conflicts together? So you have Paul and Barnabas coming back from this wildly successful trip. People from uh, Jerusalem, the pharisaical part of Christianity, it's important to realize they were Christians. They were coming up to Antioch. They were going to meet. Yay, this is awesome. No, it's not. And then boom, it explodes. So what do we do? And so when we look at Acts 15, it's important to see that this, this was coming a long time. This was one of the most, this was normal. It was a normal outflow of life. And I think with the first lesson that we need to realize when we look at conflict, we'll have a few lessons of that today, is conflict is inevitable. How you respond to the conflict is something that we could see throughout Acts 15. And I think in Acts 15, what it gives us is this blueprint on the ways we should handle conflict. Now, will I cover all of the ways we should handle conflict? No. There's going to be other ways to handle conflict. But we can get out of here just a couple of lessons uh, regarding conflict. So Paul and Barnabas come back. They're sent out in Acts chapter 13, and the call of spirit was put on them, and they had this success, and they want to come home, and they come back to where they were. They've been gone for years. They want to come home where they could know their own culture. They have their own friends. It's like they're sleeping in their own bed at night. The customs are normal. They're back home, and they're thinking everything's wonderful until these people show up. And then all of the enthusiasm that they have is doused with a wet blanket. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you're happy about something and everyone's happy and then you have, uh, we called it growing up Debbie Downer, and and there was an SNL sketch where it goes, and it's like, oh, I guess you're right, you know, and, and it just kills the momentum. And this is what was happening. In Acts 15.1, these certain people that went up, they're called the Pharisaical party. They were, they were folks from Jerusalem that knew or, or had come to Jesus, but they had how one comes to Jesus uh, set in stone and in, in the wrong stones. We talked last week on how this idea that only Jewish people could follow God. In order to follow God, you had to become Jewish. Uh, that was a, a temporary ban or a temporary law that was lifted after Jesus came. These folks weren't really catching on to the new rules that we can apply because of Jesus' grace. But it shows us one thing uh, about conflict. It shows us how it works. Something wonderful has happened, 
and all of a sudden something, someone brings something up that isn't wonderful, and then the excitement goes away. To them, there's something wrong with this. This is how conflict works. Just because you're experiencing something great doesn't mean that other people aren't having a difficult time with it. And it's important to realize this when we go through this. Now, the subject of circumcision is the basis of this conflict, and we don't get to talk about circumcision a lot, right? You're welcome. It's not a topic that we uh, happily discuss, but in this first century context, circumcision meant a lot. It was, it was an important deal. It was the t- subject of conversation. And so in biblical history, circumcision was what happened with Jewish people when they said yes to Jesus or when Abraham said yes to God's covenant and became covenant. The circumcision of Abraham uh, was a sign that God and Abraham are in covenant together and it was a reminder. And so every male born Jewish after eight days would go and be circumcised. It was part of the law. It was part of their culture. And this is the basis of conflict because now Jewish people who Jesus was, Jesus was Jewish, he came to the Jew first, and now Jewish people who were the first Christians are saying in order for other people to be Christians, they must then become Jewish first and be circumcised. And if you're a Gentile person who's in their 30s or 40s and you hear that, you're going, I have to do what to follow Jesus? And the answer is going to be no. And so Paul goes out, and Paul and Peter are on the same page. People do not have to be Jewish in order to become a Christian. They don't have to follow the law for them to follow Jesus. And this is the fight. And we look at it and we go, this is kind of silly, isn't it? Nowadays, we're 2,000 years later, 1,900 and some odd years later, here we are, and we're looking at it going, this, this is just a ridiculous argument. But we have our ridiculous arguments too. And if they were to look at our arguments that we argue and keep people away from discovering Jesus and the transformation and peace that he brings, if they were to look at our arguments, they'd go, you guys are being ridiculous as well. This is a hot button topic. Conflict is is there. People are going to have different opinions. Both of these folks, and it's important to see, had good intentions. The Pharisaical party from Jerusalem has a great intention of why they want to do this. They want to make sure that they, they messed up the last covenant. They don't want to mess up this one. And so let's be careful on how we do this. Let's, let's be careful on who we let in. Let's, let's have control over this subject. And on the other side, you have Peter and Paul and, and Saul and Barnabas and most of the others saying, no, according to what we've seen with the Spirit, there's no, we don't need to do this anymore. And so both of them come from good intentions. They're not being crazy. They're not being short-sighted. This is the second lesson that we find about conflict. When we're in a situation where there's conflict, we need to remind ourselves that there are people on both sides, and sometimes the third and the fourth side, who have, who have a very serious belief and advocacy for what they're holding to. And before we go and disrespect them and turn our backs on them, there needs to be an understanding of where they're coming from. These men who were coming from Jerusalem weren't trying to be wet blankets. They were trying to be guardians to make sure that we make the right decision, to make sure that we honor the scriptures, to make sure that we don't mess anything up. And so in 15.2, this brought Paul and Barnabas to sharp dispute with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed a long time along with other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles about this question. 
This isn't nice language. When you look in the Greek, this is a bitter fight. This is a very, a very fragile situation. It's not a polite conversation. It's a fragile situation that if they don't get this right, they can really mess up the entire church moving forward. The church was in trouble. And if you didn't handle it well, it's not going to end well. And this isn't the only time this has happened in the New Testament. Conflict happens in all of these churches. Even in the darling church of Philippians, if you read through there, Paul looks at him and goes, hey, you got a little argument happening within you. There's conflict. Deal with it. Get it under control. Don't ignore it. And it tells us this, that communities are messy. Sometimes they can look good on the surface, and sometimes there's a struggle underneath it. The early church was the same way. It looks good on top, but underneath it is lurking the problem. So the question comes, how is this going to be solved, and why does it matter even today? Conflicts has the ability when it's not resolved to hinder any movement of God. So when we look at this, we need to learn how to, re- how to resolve it, not avoid it, and navigate it, not dismiss it. The church can work through conflict. So the conflict came up. They realized it was a bigger question than any of them can handle in Antioch. And so in verse 15.3, it says the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to get some help navigating this conflict. When they got to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas told more of the stories of what's been happening. And if you can imagine, they're back in Jerusalem where the people who had issue with the problem uh, or what was happening lived. And now they have Paul and Barnabas telling more people about the stories of what God is doing out with the Gentiles. It made the problem bigger. Some of the believers who belonged to the, the Pharisees, they couldn't stand this anymore. And so they got up and said, they have, to be, they have to be circumcised. If folks from outside are going to be a part of this movement, they have to do exactly what we did. And so they go back to Jerusalem and they start to resolve it. Here's what they do. They don't ignore it. They admit it. There's a problem. Let's talk about it. They go to verse 6. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. This meeting, like all most church meetings, are very boring. How many of you have ever been to an exciting church meeting? I have not. Uh, church meetings, I heard some person describe them. They're like hockey games. They're not interesting until there's a fight. <laughs> and then once there's a fight, okay, now we got that out of the way. Now let's talk about the fight. Okay, that's, that's a church meeting. But this church meeting was interesting. It started with a fight. And there's a whole long story in Acts 15, and it bleeds over into 16 a little bit, about what happened. And Luke records the most pivotal speeches. He, he gets the sides right. He assumes that you know the side of the Pharisees. And then he tells you what Paul says. He tells you what, or what Peter says. And he tells you what James says. And then he tells you the conclusions. But the next step that they see coming, the next step that we see when it comes to conflict is they named the issue and they got together to talk about it. The most poisonous conflicts that you and I will have in our marriage, in our friendships, in our church, in our work are the ones that we never talk about. They're the ones that you kind of tiptoe around. You're afraid to talk because both parties or all of the parties have a sacred position when it comes to this. And so it becomes like an untreated infection. When we don't talk about it, all it does is fester and spread and can lead to more damage than good. But the apostles do this. They say, hey, this is a conflict. This is a big deal. Let's not be afraid of this conflict. Let's get together and talk about it. 
it's uh, a friend of mine described it this way, and I love the way it's described. It's underground. It's uh, taking the underground plumbing and putting it up above ground so you can see where all the problems are. The worst thing that happens in a house is you have a leak in a pipe and you can't see it. Then you have to go searching for it. You have to take apart walls, and then you have to find the pipe, and then it's not leaking there. Crap, I got to go upstairs and find the other pipe. And so pretty soon you have just taken everything apart. What's easy about when the plumbing's visible is you can see when there's a problem. And when there's a problem, you can address it. And so here, the problem is there. Let's not bury it. Let's not put it behind walls. Let's talk about it. Let's name the issues so we're not shocked when they come up. And we can work through them now. And so in verse 7, after much discussion, brothers, you know that some time ago, this is Peter talking, God made a choice among the Gentiles that uh, to, to, among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows their heart. He showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit. And Peter's alluding to uh, uh, what's happened with him in chapter 10 and, and with Cornelius. And at that point, they learned that, that, there is a, that you could be a Jewish Gentile and ev- or you could be a Gentile and a Christian, you could be a Jew and a Christian. In those days, they didn't think it was that way. So Peter continued with his speech. He was trying to make the essential point. Look, I've seen what's happened in these Gentile cities with my own eyes. I've seen the spirit of the Lord at work. I've seen Gentile believers have genuine conversions to, to, to Jesus and welcome them into our family. I stayed in their house. And we need to understand something Peter is getting at. That the the great work of Jesus accepts the Gentiles just as he accepts us. Look what was happening, he says, in southern Turkey and Syria where Paul and Barnabas were doing missions work. He was with Paul and Barnabas for a little bit. And this is a big deal for Peter. It's not something that he learned in in Acts chapter 10 and then went, you know what, I get it. I'm never going to struggle with this again because we see in Galatians 2 that Paul had to confront Peter on him kind of waffling on his decision. Peter was fine eating with Gentiles. He was fine accepting them into the church. He was fine uh, bringing them Jesus. He was okay with it until some of his Jewish buddies showed up and he's like, oh, hold up. Now we can't have Gentiles in here. And in Galatians 2, Paul says, I basically chewed him out for this because he was being a hypocrite. And Paul did so publicly. And so it's not an easy decision that they've come to. It's not, this is not an easy, easy road. And Peter used to be in the Pharisaical camp and now he's not and, and he's having a hard time with it. So Peter got up in front of the council in 15 and he says, I've seen what they're doing. I've seen it with my own eyes. It's not a bad thing what's happening. This is what God had planned. In verse 10, now, why do you try and test God by putting the, around the neck of the Gentiles a yoke that our ancestors, nor us, have ever been able to bear. That, that phrase, why are you trying to test God, comes from their time in, in Exodus where the people of Israel tested God by complaining about food and water. Why are you testing? Then it goes to Jesus says, don't test God. It's a phrase that would have rung the bells of all these folks who knew their Old Testaments well. Why are we trying to test God? And this thing, why are we putting a yoke around their neck that we couldn't be able to bear? Why are we making them follow the law that we could have never followed in the first place? Do you think they have a better chance at it? No. Why are we doing this? We believe in verse 11, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. 
Well, watch what happens when Peter finishes his speech, because in it we find a, a, a principle that another principle that we need to follow when it comes to conflict. Then the whole assembly became silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas as they told their stories of the wondrous things that God has done. Did you see it? Did you see the principle? We'll look at it again. In verse 13, it happens. When they finished, James spoke up and he said, listen to me. And they did. What was the other one? Listen. How hard is it in conflict to listen to the other person? How hard is it in conflict to shut your mouth and open your ears? Very difficult. I have a very hard time with it. That's the common word in both of these. Listen. In order to be listen, we have to stop talking. And so what they were encouraging or what we see modeled here is even the folks that disagreed with Saul and Barnabas, even the folks that aligned more where Peter used to be, were quiet and listened to the stories of everything that happened. We have our positions. All of us do. Whether it's in economics, whether it's in politics, whether it's in theology or hundreds or other topics, uh, uh, ethics, we all have these discussions that are always going on in our heads. I know what's right, and it doesn't make any difference what anyone else thinks. I have my right opinion, and I'm going to stick with it. And then we become brittle and rigid, and we, it, inf it infiltrates our modern society, both beyond the church and wherever we look. We have our own views, and we never want to budge, and we never even want to listen to another point. And so if anyone raises the other side to our issue, we shut them down. We mute them. We cancel them in some senses. I realize that sometimes we have to be silent and not silence the other person. We need to listen to what's going on, just as what's happening in this passage. Just because they disagreed with something, and they had grounds to disagree, and they had somewhat of a scriptural basis to disagree from, they didn't shut down the conversation. They listened to it. They engaged with it. They danced with it. They didn't have to marry it, but they could dance with it. They could can, they can, they can see how it fits the leaders sat silent and listened to Paul and Barnabas talk about all the miracles that were happening. And then they listened to James speak. At this point, the, this James, is, it wasn't James the disciple. He's the James that wrote the book of James in the back of your Bible. It was the brother of Jesus. He had risen to prominence. He didn't start off a Christian. But after Jesus' resurrection, James, James became a Christian. And so James is in charge of the church. He's the, uh, the bishop of the church of Jerusalem, we can see. And now James starts to speak, and he says, Brothers, listen to me, just as Simon has described how God has showed uh, his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people from himself. And that's a tremendous phrase, a people from himself. For a Jew to say that about the Gentiles is fantastic because that's the phrase that was used when he talked about the Jewish people. Now he's saying the same rights that are reserved for Jews are applied to the Gentiles. James recognized that God was calling the Gentiles to be exactly what the Jews were. You might be thinking, what, what, what could I get from this? And you can get the racial implications from this. That's there. They, they had a racial prejudice. There's cultural implications from this. There's gender implications for this. How far do we take this, uh, people for themselves? And what are those implications that you can think of when it comes to this, this passage? But when we realize this, that when we realize that God is, is, is no picky person when it comes to who gets to follow him or not, 
Everyone is given a decision. Everyone has an opportunity to follow Jesus. This is what James saw clearly. Then he continued, the words of the prophets agree with this. And then he quoted for at length the prophet Amos, who predicted for centuries that this would happen, that the Gentiles would be a people of God. And this is another tool that we can use when it comes to to our conflicts. James goes to Scripture to look and see what does Scripture say about the conflict. We have our voices in our lives. We come to a conflict, say you're in a dispute with a friend, the first thing that we like to do is find out who agrees with me. This is how we feel uh, we're right. If 51% of the people in my life agree with me and 49% of the people in their life agree with them, who's right? Me, right? We look at our voices. We try and confirm our biases. And so when we come to conflict, sometimes we don't need to get more voices in this. We need the scripture to say something. And when the scripture speaks about conflict and, and resolves it, we need to be mindful of that. What does the Bible say about your argument? Now, there are arguments here too. And what's the Bible say? I, can, I have the ability, and maybe you do too, I can make the Bible agree with everything I have to say. And feel pretty good about it. I went to school for this stuff. But we do this whether you've gone to school for it or not. We twist the Bible to agree with our, to make it agree with our viewpoints. We can twist the scriptures for anything. Uh, There's a book out called Twisted Scripture where the author starts to talk about all this. It's, It's a pretty hilarious book. But James saw these two arguments and the first place he goes to is, What did the scriptures say about this? What did the prophets say about this? Let's make sure we're not inventing a new way of thinking. Is this something that has been honored for centuries? Let's let's let scripture decide or have a view into this. He uses scripture in verse, uh, verse 19, which might bother us a bit. He says, let's use scripture. Now, in, in the Wesleyan theology, uh, there's verse, we'll have a theology class real quick. There was a way of looking at how we view scripture and how we view conflict. It was called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is a fun word to say. There's four ways to look at it. Okay, so you have, your, you have what's happening in your life. And, and I might mess this up, it's not in my notes, but you have the issue. How do we look at it? Well, we look to scripture as one of them. Okay, scripture dictates this. And then you ask the question, okay, this is what scripture says. This is what James does. Let's take it back to the prophets. Amos 9 says that God's going to bring a people from himself. This is great. Now you look to tradition. And tradition is one of those words that we go, eh, tradition's boring. It's stuffy. It's the boomers. Uh, We don't like them, right? No, tradition is good. So James looks back at the tradition. How has the historical, for them, the historical faith interpreted what's going to happen here? And you look at it and go, oh, they talked about this very thing. And so we're aligned with scripture. We're aligned with tradition. Now let's reason about this. That's the third one, scripture, tradition, reason. Let's think about how this applies to our culture. And then the last one, the part that we tend to overweigh is the experience. How has this been experienced in line with reason, tradition, and scripture? 
All of these are present here. And, and, and if you want to really dig down and, and drill into it, there's a fifth one called the Spirit. And what's the Spirit doing with these four? So maybe there's five, and I don't know the quadrilateral. I don't know what the fivilateral is. But it's, it's those things. And so when we look at our conflict, we go to Scripture. We pay attention to tradition. We look and we reason together as adults, not getting mad at each other because someone disagrees with us. And then what's the experience? So Amos said that this would happen. Traditions covered, scriptures there. Reason, they're talking about it. And then Peter, Barnabas, and Paul are saying, we've seen this with our own eyes, and it lines up with what's happening. This is how churches should handle conflict. Sadly, this is not how churches have handled conflict. Instead, we split, and we fight, and we argue, and the enemy likes to use conflict to take every single church down. And he's done that in this city. He's done it down the street. He's done it all around us. Destroys relationships. You and I can have conflict on a number of things. And it can end a friendship. And for the last few years, we've allowed conflict to divide society, divide churches, and divide families. It need not be that way. We can handle it. We're given this blueprint on what we can do. The church models it, and James keeps going. And in verse 19, he says, it is, this, this one might bother us a bit too. It is, it is my judgment, therefore. And did you catch what he said? He said, it's my judgment. He did not say, okay, now that we have all sides, all in favor. Oh, no. He didn't do that. He didn't take a vote on it. It would have, and I think if he did, he would have had a significant percentage of people in that church that day that would not have voted this way. He didn't follow the politics of the point. He didn't follow the politics of the convention. And, and I can't dom- document this, but I'd be willing to wager that if he, if he did, he would have lost. But instead, what he did say, what he did notice is that this was rooted in the authority of Scripture. It's been copied down to the traditions of everything that we've seen. We've had experiences. And that's a good way to go. Because if we root our decisions of what we make in the middle of our church conflict, we're going to have a different decision every other week. Another issue is going to rise up. Something's going to happen. A political movement's going to start and we're going to easily be swayed over to what they say because it's popular opinion. That's not how the scripture works. It's not how the authority of scripture works. James looks at this and goes, it's my judgment. This is what seems good. And, that, and he pronounced one of the most uh, severe theological conclusions that the church has known in its 2,000 years of history. It's heavy. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. James was saying, we got a whole world out there to win. And we got, we've got to do our best to make sure that people who don't know Jesus, who are different than we are, are made to feel as welcome as possible. James held the fundamental convictions of what the gospel says. Let's not add one grain of salt and anything that's necessary so that when people come, they are free to follow Jesus. And in many places today, the church is making it harder for people on the outside to come to faith. And they're making it harder for people to respond to the gospel. 
James follows the principle, or the church ends up following the principle, that, that Jesus does love you the way you are, and he sends the invitation to the address of where you sit right now. But the point of, you staying, uh, the point of it is not that you stay in that seat. The transformation that Jesus brings, the peace, joy, and happiness that Jesus brings is open for everybody. It's not that just he, he welcomes you and says, everything you're doing is great. No, he doesn't say that to anybody. Jesus welcomes you and says, now come follow me. Take up your cross, which means give a, get rid of some of the stuff that you're doing and follow what I'm about. James says transformation is open to all. And sometimes we make that too complicated. We want people to transform to the image of Christ before we could say they belong. That's not the way we do. Or we make it too easy. We say keep your lifestyle and blessings on whatever you're doing, even if it's a destructive lifestyle. Blessings because Jesus loves you like that. It's true and it's not. He loves them like that. He wishes them not to stay that way. And so what do they do? They come to a decision. And in verse 24, it says this, we have heard that some went out from us without authorization and disturbed you. He acknowledges their feelings. They troubled what you had, they troubled your minds by what they had said. And so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord. It seemed good to us or it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, notice the connection between the church and the hand of God, not to burden you with anything beyond following the following requirements. In other words, he says, here are two or three things that you're going to have to do in order to be a part of what's happening here. Uh, It's not carte blanche, you get to stay the way you are. No, there's an invitation to things. Verse 29, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols because Gentiles didn't see any kind of problem with this. Uh, You're to abstain from blood. That seems gross, not a problem. Uh, You're to abstain from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. If you avoid these things, you'll do well. And then, farewell. That's the letter. Circumcision is not necessary, but we wish that you would abstain from some of these things of your past way of living. This is the law of love in motion. This is a compromise. Did the Gentiles get everything they wanted? No. They had some dietary restrictions. Where they went out to eat now became a problem. And that word sexual immorality, that word immorality is the same word, porneia, that is used back in Leviticus. So the sexual code that we see in scripture is pasted on to what the Gentiles needed to do. How is sex used in your life? It's in the form of marriage between man and woman. And Peter doubles down on this. James doubles down. Look, it was in Leviticus. It's also in about 13 other places. And it's here. You don't get to go live your life full of freedom. No, you need to find your freedom in Christ. And freedom in Christ means that we live certain ways with certain people. So watch what you eat. Watch where you eat. And let's change the way we live our lives. There's sacrifices on every end. The Gentiles had to sacrifice to this. They didn't have to be circumcised, but they had to change their lives. Did the Jewish party from Jerusalem get everything they wanted? No. They wanted circumcision. They wanted everybody to be circumcised. They didn't get what they wanted either, so they had to give a little. 
And this is the principle in conflict that we see. Nobody ends both winning. There's no such thing as a win-win. Both sides had to compromise. Both sides had to loosen their grip. And when they did, what they found is when they loosened their grip, the Spirit of God kept moving. They weren't holding it too tightly. When they found their freedoms in Christ, people like Paul and Barnabas were released to go out into their next missionary journey. Also notice that this letter was sent off with people. It wasn't an email. It wasn't a social media post with all caps and different emojis. It was with a person. They sent it with a trusted person, Paul and Barnabas. There was a relationship there. He didn't write a letter and then ship it off. He said, no, we're going to send you uh, with, to navigate these conflicts with some people that you know and love. And maybe they don't necessarily agree with all decisions because there was a group of people that went with them. But they all said, you know, we need to send a face with this conflict. The Jerusalem church sent a letter and godly men, it, it formed a relationship. It made the conflict uh, the conflict didn't destroy the relationship. The conflict strengthened their relationship. There's a lot of lessons that we could take as we look at our culture and the way the church is and what's going on with our lives and Acts 15. First, the church in Jerusalem uh, ensured that the gospel was never compromised. Throughout this debate, the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins, and, and, and the call to repentance and transformation never went away. The church understood what people, Jew or Gentile, must do in order to be saved. Uh, this could have been a moment for the gospel uh, to be confused, to have been diluted. It could have been a moment for it to be divided over misunderstandings, but the church persevered. And Paul would say later in, in 1 Corinthians that if anyone pulls the cross out of the gospel in any way, shape, or form, they're wrong. And so they held to that. The gospel was there. The gospel was persevered. Second, they, they, they preserved uh, the unity of the body. No one walked away. Not everyone was happy, but no one walked away. We don't hear this well in today's societies. We're, we're so articulated with a customized society that any person who doesn't hear what they want to say, they can leave rather than sticking it out and like saying, let's talk about this a little bit more. Instead, everyone was on board with what was happening. Whether we're talking about businesses and the stores we go to, the clothing we buy or the jobs we work, everybody demands in our society that we have his or her own way, his or her own way. And if they don't, they leave. The beauty of this passage is that people disagreed with each other, yet they stayed in relationship. They disagreed sharply with each other still. This is an issue that continues to come up in Paul's writings, yet they stayed in relationship and allowed the Holy Spirit to work with them. Finally, in verse 30, we read this. Where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter, the people read it, and we're glad for its encouraging message. Judas, not that Judas, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and, and strengthen their brothers. The resolution to our conflicts have to build a greater relationship. And so as we seek in our lives to make restoration with the relationships that we've had that have been broken... When someone comes into our life with an opinion that we're not sure what to do with, this passage gives us a model to follow. There is going to be conflict as we rebuild our lives, as we rebuild our church, as we build, rebuild families. There's going to be times where you're going to hear something you don't like. 
And how you respond it can either weaken a relationship or strengthen the relationships. As we continue to have conversations about race, evangelism, the role of church, uh, human sexuality, marriage, everything, there's going to be opinions that you don't like. What's the church going to do in the city? Is there, an, there, and with every single one of those questions is the opportunity for the enemy to come in and say, break it up. I'm going to use this, uh, this conflict to destroy any momentum that has been created. I'm going to use this conflict to stop the church. So we should be mindful of the conflicts that we bear and how we address them. And so the question for you today is simply this. What conflicts are you stewing on in your brain right now? Who's that person that when they come into the room, you're going to be like that show that Carrie and I might watch and, and where it's going to be, I don't know how this is going to end. There's a trouble in your spirit when you hear their name and you just can't wait to argue. Who's that person? Who's that person with the opinion you do not like? And are you able to work through it like we see in Acts 15? and develop a stronger relationship, even though you don't agree with everything with them. A stronger relationship that brings others to Christ as well. Because they see that if you two can get along and you have differing opinions on A, B, C, and all the way to Z, but you still love and pursue Jesus, the church will be better served because of it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that uh, we get to live with brothers and sisters who... uh, have vastly different beliefs of what we do. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different ethnicities and different cultures, different beliefs about everything. Yet you call us to follow you from all of these places. And so God, may we not raise our personal opinions to the place where they take the place of you and we're following our opinions rather than following you, Jesus. May we work through our conflicts with grace, with humility. May we listen and learn and hold it to scripture, hold it to history and see which way to go so that we can go together as a church and more people will be drawn to you because of it. It's in your name we pray.